1: Today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audiblepodcast.com slash mission log.
2: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 123, Where Silence Has Lease.
1: Welcome in to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Recording from an inescapable void of nothingness, as I
0: tend to do, I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we pick apart an episode of Star Trek, hunting for morals, meanings, and messages. For those in our audience who are disembodied, immortal alien intelligence, welcome. We hope you'll stick around for the 700-plus hours... It takes for us to go through the entire franchise today, where Silence has lease.
1: Though I hear it might be looking to buy, so it's kind of exciting. Oh, good, good. Well, I hope their credit is good. <laughs> we'll walk them through. And uh-huh. We'll see if. We, what would it take to get you <laughs> into this silence?
0: Into this void of nothingness.
1: Indeed. By the way, I can't believe I'm the only one recording from a void of nothingness. Seriously, I thought you and I know.
0: Well, well, I you know it is Hollywood, so <laughs> what, what more could you say? right? Oh, so
1: so you are. You just
0: don't talk about
1: it, right? I right, see how right.
0: it is. I see. It was it's nothing that's with a press agent.
2: <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: hey, uh, speaking of things that we do talk about, I know it's one of your favorite things, and it's certainly something that people look forward to, myself included. I, I act curmudgeonly about it, but I I mm-hmm. look forward to uh, John Champion bringing the uh, bringing the trivia knowledge every week. Won't you please? Lay something down for us today.
0: Ken, I've got uh, a tremendous amount of trivia for you today. Um, some of it uh, uh, very interesting uh, because some of it delves into historical stuff as well. Uh, today's episode was written by Jack Sowards. Now, uh, he also wrote Star Trek 2, the Wrath of Khan. And you may be saying, but Nick Meyer wrote the Wrath of Khan. And you would be right as well. So uh, Jack uh, was hired by Harve Bennett after Bennett had already written a script in which Kirk and his son team up to battle Khan. Uh, Sowards had a script about the ultimate weapon, first called the Omega, then called the Genesis device. Nick Meyer took those elements that he liked and formed them into the script that he directed. Now, uh, I'm going to get this name wrong, uh, but Wienrich Kolb, directed, and uh, that is a name to get used to as badly as I may pronounce it, uh, since we will be seeing more of it in The Next Generation, um, and other versions of Star Trek. Other genre credits include Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider. He even directed Shatner in a few episodes of T.J. Hooker, and he dated an actress named Kate Mulgrew for a few years. We will learn more about her later as well. And uh, unfortunately, both Sowards and Kolb Passed away in 2007. Now, the title of today's episode comes from the poem The Spell of the Yukon by Robert W. Service. Service worked for the Canadian Bank of Commerce and uh, they relocated him to the Yukon. So, what do you do? Well, if you're in the Yukon, you write poems. And uh, in today's episode, We meet a uh, a facsimile of the USS Yamato, the sister ship of the Enterprise. Now uh, the Yamato, named after the World War II flagship of the Imperial Japanese Navy, Yamato is kind of a mythic warship, and uh, she sank in 1945 after a fierce battle. And uh, Ken, I found this story to be incredibly interesting. I always like to to find out the the names of the ships that we meet in uh, in Star Trek because, well, they typically are named after ships from. Earth history for real. And uh, the Amado was one that I didn't know too much about, and and I found this bit of her, her last mission to be so incredibly strange uh, that I had to share it. Operation 10 Go would have had the Japanese fleet go from uh, Tokuyama to Okinawa, where they were to take on the Allied forces. And it was an insane plan because basically the Japanese Navy would have taken everything they had, including the Yamato, and only given it enough fuel for a one-way trip. At which point, the Yamato and the other ships were supposed to drive full speed and beach themselves in order to become unsinkable weapons platforms. So the idea is they just pull right up onto the beach. They can't get sunk and they just fire everything that they have. Now... The Allies intercepted the message before this could happen. So, um everything that the allied forces had took on this japanese fleet as it was on its way to Okinawa and the yamato was sunk. It is interesting to know that planes from the USS Enterprise had engaged with the yamato before, uh, but the yamato managed to stick it out through multiple battles before uh, meeting the ultimate demise during operation Ten Go. Uh, fewer than 300 of more than the three thousand men on the Yamato were saved in that uh, that last battle. Uh, Earl Bowen plays the character Nagilam. And uh, he is an extremely busy character actor with uh, a couple of hundred credits to his name. Been working steadily since the 1970s. And uh, you may remember him as uh, Dr. Peter Silberman in the Terminator films. And uh, the character, Nigelum, was actually named for actor Richard Mulligan. Nigelum is Mulligan, spelled backwards, uh, who was originally desired for the role. I'm sorry, uh, Richard Mulligan from Soap? Yeah, Richard Mulligan. Yeah,
1: <laughs>
0: that Richard Mulligan. Richard
1: Mulligan from Empty Nest?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. That would have been...
1: Very huh. different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, probably not, because, I mean, you don't really see his face. And, yeah, you, you just know, sort
0: of see the lips moving My around. assumption is yeah. he can
1: actually do a straight read, or he could. I, I'm assuming that Richard Mulligan has actually uh, passed away at this point. I don't yes. know. It's right. sort of yeah. terrible to assume, isn't it? He might be listening yeah. right now and going, what the heck? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he was a great comedic actor though he was also one of Blake mm-hmm. Edwards favorites oh right yeah yeah he was yeah. in the SOB and i can't remember yeah. what else but a few other Blake Edwards i think of him as just being wacky tremendous physical comedy on soap as well right yeah right. It's, that that would
0: have been a very could have been this could have been the wackiest episode of star trek ever <laughs> And Ken finally, Ensign Haskell was played by Charles Douglas. I really hope you didn't get too attached to him Ensign yeah, you know, I was excited
1: because he was a named character and 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 you know usually when you get named characters, I'm thinking, oh well, they're gonna be around oh yeah, until like act three, maybe
0: no <laughs> no, sort of no, oh, Ensign Haskell, we hardly knew ye yeah. Ken, before we get to today's story, we do want to mention our new sponsor again, Audible.com. Audible has one of the largest libraries of spoken audio digital downloads for users. Over 150,000 titles. Users can sign up as Audible listeners and you can get book credits each month for a low monthly fee. But Ken, better than that, Mission Log listeners have the ability to get a free Audio download from audible.com by going to audiblepodcast.com/slash mission log. And what's great is they have a ton of Star Trek titles to pick from. Now, you and I are talking about The Next Generation, so our listeners may want to pick a Next Generation story to supplement their listening to Mission Log. Um, What's great, some of the Peter David uh, novels that are spinoffs from Next Generation, we have Imzadi 1 and Imzadi 2. Maybe you wanted to uh, follow along with a, a story, an actual story from Next Generation, Reunion, which is adapted for audio form, You can download that story. Uh, Contamination, you can download that story. Um, More spinoffs like Q and Law, also by Peter David. Uh, Relics, if you wanted to sort of uh, jump the timeline, as it were, and listen to that story before we get to it. And you can get it for free by going to audiblepodcast.com slash log. Just a, a ton of Star Trek titles, Ken. Yeah, yeah,
1: and mm-hmm. and some other really uh, fun titles, too, like uh, Being With Dying, Cultivating mm-hmm. Compassion and Fearlessness in the Presence of Death, uh, Fear of Death, Overcome Your Fear of Dying with Hypnosis, and As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, yeah, I, which is I, probably not actually one that belongs in that list, but... Uh, uh, I sense a little bit of a theme there for you, Ken. I don't know. It's, you know, something about today's show. I can't say what it is exactly, ah. but something about it. I will say, actually, you know, uh, aside from the death and dying stuff and the Star Trek stuff, one of my favorite things on Audible has always been uh, some of the radio plays that you can get. Like, you can download uh, the Hitchhiker's uh, radio plays on Audible. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, cool. it's, it's yeah, if you haven't listened to those or if you haven't listened to those in a long time, I highly recommend those two. Uh, Science fiction, yes. Not Star Trek. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but, but just a tremendous amount of fun plus you'll probably start getting like at least five more jokes per episode if you listen to you <laughs> right. was, uh, from our show so
0: well, we know that our, our listeners are well read and very thoughtful and that it's, this just gives them more opportunity to pick up more interesting content so again audiblepodcast.com slash mission log and get your free audio download today
2: Man looks in the abyss. There is nothing staring back at him. Man flies a starship into the abyss, and there is a weird sort of snake-looking thing staring back at him. I may not be doing the episode justice.
0: Prologue. The Enterprise may be on a boring old charting mission, but Worf is in the holodeck testing his warrior skills... Along for the training is Riker, who gets to see his comrade in action, battling a vicious, hollow creation. Even when the simulation ends, War seems a bit bloodthirsty, until Riker calls him off. Act 1. Back to all that fun charting an unvisited region of space, the Morgana Quadrant, and Data finds a whole bunch of nothing. Literally, somewhere out there is a hole in space. There's nothing there, no energy, no light, no mass, nothing. Data says there's no record of anything remotely like it, regardless of Klingon myths or even the more mythical missions of James Kirk. Cool. Let's go in for a closer look. The Enterprise gets closer, and to be cautious, Picard orders a probe to be launched. In mere seconds, the probe disappears. No trace of it. Worf is getting a little antsy. He's thinking about that Klingon legend that Data had never heard of. The one about the void in space that eats spaceships. He wants a yellow alert, but Picard sees no need for alarm. He'll just launch another probe, and same thing. No probe, no nothing. The Enterprise edges a little closer, but this time a little too close. Before they know it, the crew find themselves and their ship surrounded by the vastness of nothing. Act 2. Welcome to the void. We got nothing to the left, more nothing to the right, and up ahead, the pitch book for Seinfeld. No one knows what quite to do. Ship systems are normal. Data speculates that the lack of dimension may be a dimension unto itself. No time for new-age hippie nonsense, though. Time to get out of here and back to something other than nothing. The card orders a reverse course. The Enterprise leaps away and... Nothing. Seriously, there is so much nothing. Data and Wesley both confirmed that they should have traveled quite a distance now, definitely past where they entered the void, but there's just an ungodly amount of nothing everywhere you look. And what he hopes will be a maneuver to outsmart the nothingness, Data drops a stationary beacon for the Enterprise to track. Ahead warp two, and... we're back in front of the stationary beacon that was behind us. Can't win for trying. If nothing was getting boring, though, something just showed up. A Romulan bird of prey. The Romulan ship opens fire, but with one photon torpedo, the Enterprise destroys it. Way too easy. And when it goes, it really goes away. No debris or anything. Without warning, another ship appears. This time it's friendly, the USS Yamato. She looks friendly enough, but there is no reply to hails and no sign of life. Riker volunteers himself and Worf to go have a look. Act 3, on board the Yamato, things are not as they seem. Worf and Riker materialize absolutely not where they intended, and they're in different parts of the ship. Upon finding each other, thinking the other is in trouble, they make their way to the bridge. Bridges. All the bridges on this ship, bridges just seem to be everywhere, and this is really messing with Worf's head. It's almost like someone is deliberately messing with them. It looks like the Yamato, but it definitely is not. On board the Enterprise, the power dims but comes back just when an escape hole appears in the void. Too bad about the timing, since Worf and Riker can't be beamed back. When the hole disappears, systems are back online though, which means that Riker and Worf can come back home after all. As they beam over the fake Yamato fades into oblivion having just had his mind messed with Riker's had enough he's perturbed and ready to leave act four few more holes in the void appear but as soon as the enterprise can set course they disappear it's becoming an annoying game and Deanna chimes in that she senses a kind of intelligence that she hadn't picked up before it's almost like they're being observed for some kind of experiment the card orders a dead stop. They won't play into anyone's experiment. That clue everyone suddenly got must have been just the right thing to make their tormentor appear. A huge, disembodied face and voice appears on the view screen and introduces itself as Nigillum. Data says there's nothing there, but there he is. Nagillum sizes up the crew on the bridge. There's Data, who's not like the others, and there's Dr. Pulaski, who is female. He'd like a demo of how humans make more humans, but Picard is really ready to just go home. Nagilim is also having a difficult time with the concept of mortality and death. As another experiment, he kills crewman Haskell right there in front of everyone. Interesting, Nagilim discovers. He would like to understand death a little more, all types of death, and announces to Picard that his next experiment will only use about a third of the Enterprise crew. Act 5 This is quite a pickle for Picard. We have a ship stuck in a void, and we have a Nagilum, who is ready to kill a good chunk of the crew. What to do? Picard and Riker go to engineering, where they initiate the Enterprise auto-destruct. If Nagilum won't reason with them, then he can't have any of them. They choose a 20-minute interval before destruction. And in the meantime, Picard relaxes in his quarters. He's soon visited by Deanna and Data. They both have reasons to dissuade Captain from going through with the auto-destruct. Deanna says it won't solve anything. Data is more philosophical. He wants to know what death is. Picard tries to explain, but the more he talks to them, the more he realizes something is wrong. His crew wouldn't try to talk him out of a decision. These two are manifestations from Nagilum. As soon as Picard calls him on it, a message from the real Lieutenant Data from the bridge comes through. The Enterprise is no longer in the void. Great! Time to turn off that auto-destruct. Well, not so fast. Picard orders the Enterprise to pull away, but Picard lets the clock tick down a little more. He's not so sure that this isn't an illusion, too. With a few seconds left, Picard and Riker cancel today's brush with death. In his ready room, Picard talks to open space, telling Nagilum he hopes he got what he needed. Nigillam actually shows up on Picard's computer, ready to share the results of his test. He finds humans a ball of contradiction, but Picard points out that they share the trait of curiosity. Until next time, the end. It was great. I can't believe you didn't mention this in uh, Mm trivia,
1: by Mm -hmm. the way. It was great to see Skeletor getting work again. Yeah, we missed him. Yeah. <laughs> he did. Yeah. This was actually supposed to be his breakout role because he was typecast mm-hmm. before this. as sort of like an evil thing with a skull head.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, sadly, he just ended up playing an evil thing with a skull head. But still. Yeah. It was yeah. good to see him. Uh, good to see him try.
0: It's a little weird. He's got a little bit of a skull head, a little bit of uh, like an animal face, a little bit of uh, a, an alien. I mean, it, it's there's a lot going on there. And then I like how the lips don't always line up with the face. Yeah, you know. Well, wait, yeah. are you talking now about Nagelum or are you talking about Skeletor? Oh, I'm talking about Nagelum. Oh yeah, Okay, yeah, I was yeah, talking
1: yeah. about I was talking about the thing on the uh, on the holodeck.
0: Yeah. Oh. Oh. oh that. Oh, of course. It no, was a
1: hundred percent Skeletor. Oh, he yeah. was a hundred percent Skeletor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No. I yeah. like you didn't. You actually didn't mention this part in the in the recap. Mm-hmm. And why would you? But Nagiilim. I mean, for all of his like, you know, I'm awesome and I can span the universe and I'll live mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. He can't draw very well. <laughs> no, <laughs>
0: because no, he I appears hate. to
1: them and they're like, whoa, that's ugly. In fact, uh, Jordy actually says, whoa, that's ugly. Or Words to that effect, and Nagelum's like, What? I, I tried so hard to look just like you, and he's right. got I mean, he looks more like a snake, honestly, but with like its human eyes and a mouth that kind of you know, moves around.
0: Yeah, not w- very good
1: w- without the rest of the what we'll go ahead and call a head, you know, for, right. the,
0: for the sake of Nagilam's trying, right? Right, right, right. Yes, um, I, I like that we open the show without a captain's log. Like we we enter into this sort of troubling feel on the bridge, and but then it's all about the holodeck program and Worf's psyche, which I I thought was a little bit of a letdown. Um, if Worf is really that dangerous, he he needs counseling. Um, but I, I just sort of like the the mood when we entered the show, and it was just sort of quiet. Yeah, we go right into it. Although know?
1: I'm going to say they're they're messing with me again. I I now have yeah. to completely rescind my rule that if the holodeck is mentioned in the prologue or is present in the prologue, yeah. that then that's going to be a big part of the show because, you know, there's, well, stuff, there, there's stuff going on on the holodeck and then, yeah, we're done with the holodeck for the rest of the show.
0: Yeah, yeah. Although it could have been a bigger part of the show. I, I, I want to come back to that uh, regarding Worf. Okay. But but, but yeah, yeah. It, it could have been. It could have indicated something else, but, but it didn't.
1: Yeah, it just like we'll get to the part about, you know, about... The fact that they're facing death down through this whole episode. But initially mm-hmm. so uh, oh look, there's a there's a big there's a big bowl of nothing over mm-hmm. there. And it's over there and we're over here, so let's let's keep looking at it from over here. We'll get a little mm-hmm. bit closer. Oh, it's all around us now. Yeah. Well let's chat. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't understand. I mean they were they were so like uh, nonchalant about that whole thing. It's like, oh, you know, this is kind of crazy. It reminds me of the time that, you know, we thought mm-hmm. there was a place where there was absolutely nothing. Yeah, you know, back in the day, they would have killed you, Captain, for taking us here. Ah, good times. Right. Well, let's keep sitting here.
0: <laughs> well, although, well, to their credit, though, they they yeah. are on a charting mission, and they're they're exploring. Yeah. So, if there's a whole lot of nothing, well, let's go check out that whole lot of nothing and see how it relates to something
1: okay but once the whole lot of nothing like you know wraps itself around you yeah then it's uh, okay time to go at that point i mean (laughs) don't you think you then immediately go can we get away from this because they were there for quite a while before they were like all right fun's over yeah 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 because i because personally i think fun was over (laughs) right the second the thing you know sort of
0: hugged the enterprise too hard yeah yeah um wharf is very worked up about everything In this episode, I, I, it's funny, I mentioned this episode to somebody and, and their reply to it was just one bridge. (laughs) It's it's like the memorable thing from this, you know, well, we'll you know, your ship has two. You you do have two bridges on your enterprise. They do,
1: but they're not identical and they're not right next to each other. No. I mean, it was like they were playing, I mean, for, for any gamers out there, it's like they were playing portal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, It looked cool. I like those effects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, yeah it was a big mess with your head moment though.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, all right. So uh, uh, Nagilim notices that Doctor Pulaski is female. Um, he somehow missed Deanna, who was right there, yeah, standing right next to Picard. He also noticed that Data was different than the rest of them,
1: but somehow missed uh, Worf. Yeah,
0: yeah, who's different?
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> a little yeah.
0: bit. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah Nagilim. Very, very strange. And, and, and Gillum, he wants a, a demo of propagating the species. And, uh, again, I just felt like, you know, the guy could read a book. Um, or maybe he's just a perv. Maybe he's just a big space perv. He
1: could and be. I mean, here's the thing, because he does know who everybody is. Mm-hmm. So my assumption is he's picking that up how? Did he read the ship's records, or is he getting that psychically? Because if he read the ship's records— he'd go ahead and access the library and figure out everything he wants to know. Yeah. Or if he's doing it psychically, then he's got to have some understanding of death because while the while the people on the bridge may be cool as cucumbers, there had to be people that you know below decks. Somebody, yeah. out of a thousand people, somebody on that ship had to be worried about
0: dying at that point. Oh, that would have been me. I'd have been freaking out <laughs> in the lower decks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not,
1: though, because maybe they wouldn't have even told you yet. Maybe you wouldn't even <sighs> know. Oh, well, yeah, is it dark outside? You would be saying, and then, you know, <laughs> right. I'd be next to you going, it's always dark outside. Idiot, we're in space. It is space. <laughs> Keep peeling potatoes. They don't peel themselves. <laughs> right. or, yeah. That's what I assume we would be doing on the internet.
0: Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, at the end of the day, I wondered if if Nick Elam was really as short sighted as he seems, you know, was he calling Picard's bluff, which was not a bluff? Would he really have killed that much more of the crew? I mean, I I suppose since he already killed one, um, sure, we are to believe that he would have just gone through and and killed a bunch of them. But then I wondered, could he have brought Haskell back? Um, Mm. Does he have, you know, he certainly seems more powerful than Q. Um, So could he have just snapped his... Non-existent nothingness fingers and brought back Haskell. What? If Picard had made a case for it and said, "Man, we we really need Haskell back," but he didn't.
1: Yeah, I, I don't. First of all, I don't know what makes you think he's more powerful than Q. We've seen no limit to Q's power to this point. So
0: why you think this guy's more powerful? I don't know. And, I got that impression. Yeah, and w- why? I, I I don't know. I, I just said maybe because it's such a giant face. Yeah, I was going to say can't even look like. Yeah. This. I mean, to me. Right. I, I doubt he would get half the jokes that Q would
1: get. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not, I, it, it didn't occur to me. That he was more powerful. In fact, I, I wondered, well, I wondered why there was no mention of Q
0: mm-hmm.
1: in this episode, because mm-hmm. I mean, they, 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 they do strike me as, as similar in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I wanted to mention this, you know, the, the captain, as we you know, were talking about those lower decks crewmen uh, mm-hmm. who, who are just waiting for the auto destruct to go off, um, you know, the, the captain just sort of making the decision of who lives and who dies. And it is like, let this be your last battlefield. The, the stakes are real and the order <laughs> just came from the bridge. And how many people are thinking I did not sign up for this yeah. and and how interesting and cavalier. That we come up with a time frame, like, 20 minutes. Yeah. Let me let me do two things really quickly. Sure,
1: yeah. It's let that be your last battlefield. Oh, oh, oh did I, uh, yeah, oh, wow, yeah. I... I I just, I just want wrong. to stop the letters. I just want to you know, stop yeah, the yeah, letters please. before they happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm also
1: a little bit confused. We've apparently had an upgrade to the auto-destruct sequence since season mm-hmm. one, because it seems like in season one, everything was really hardwired, right? Didn't they have mm-hmm. like 15 minutes, and they had to get to the bridge, and they both had to stand there and do a certain thing and say an incantation or whatever? Right, right. Because you joked about the fact you were like, man, I wanted to see Riker just lose it and go, yes, yes, turn off the auto-destruct. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, he does that at some point. Yeah, well, yeah. welcome to that. I actually yeah. really... There was there was a there was a neat bit of understated. I don't want to go so far as to say comedy in this, but but Jean Luc Picard is cool all the way through this episode. Mm-hmm. He's like, I mean, he's like, like Fonzie cool. I mean, he's just not losing it. <laughs> Except Fonzie occasionally lost it. Even I can't think. The only thing I can think to compare him to, honestly, is Jean Luc Picard. That's how cool he is in this episode. Because yeah. because you know Riker's like because Picard like lets it count down to like the last five seconds before they're going to auto destruct. Mm-hmm. And he says, "All right, cancel the auto destruct." And then the computer says, "Hey, Riker, do you agree?" And Riker's like, "Huh? Yes, 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 absolutely agree, hundred percent. Please don't blow us up."
2: <laughs>
1: and Picard turns to him and goes, "A simple yes would have sufficed." Number one, it's right. it's very it's a it's it's a very cute sort of a, sort of understated moment. But yeah, you got that moment that you asked for there. But the, 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 going back though, it seems like we had a very limited amount of time. Wasn't it like fifteen minutes from engineering to get up to the bridge or like 10 minutes or something. It was it was a very short amount of time that they had to get back up to the bridge and, and, and turn the whole thing off. And this time right. they're like, what do you think? Like, uh, should we give them a day? What do you think? Right. Like five minutes? How long? He's right. like, oh, no, let's give them time to thoroughly prepare for death. 20 minutes? <laughs> Can't tell you, I'm spending like 20 minutes every waking hour at this point. No. <laughs> at least no. kind of thinking about that stuff every now and then for somebody to come to me and go, hey, well, 20 minutes. This yeah. is your this is your twenty minute warning. Get settled with you know everything.
0: Like, what, what do I watch on the DVR? Exactly. What do I you know? I I just <laughs> what do you, what do you do with that time? You don't. Plus, that's... did they get,
1: did they even get on the ship's intercom and make an all call? Are they still are you and I still below decks like peeling potatoes, not For even that? knowing that this is happening?
0: That's what I'm worried about. That is absolutely what I'm worried about because there didn't seem to be an announcement. Does it just show up on a screen somewhere and you go, wait a (laughs) minute, is this, is this a glitch or because I was just reading this other thing that I have to do for work and now this pops up. Uh,
1: That's fantastic. Dude, dude, have you prepared for everything? What? Didn't you get the email? What? I was going to check the email. It's, I'm busy. They're not going to feel themselves. (laughs)
2: Really terrible about the death events in Haskell. There hasn't been a death that senseless on Star Trek since. Oh, that woman. You know, the blonde. She stood next to Ward. Good fighter. Had some anger issues. You know the one. That guy from the planet in Honor. Speaking of Q, Mm
1: -hmm. as we were earlier, I found myself uh, actually thinking about Hyde and Q with this episode, and it was all around data. I love data's ability to hang with the idea that something doesn't make sense and yet it is, you know, mm-hmm. and I guess it's because he is data. He doesn't get hung up on whether something should be or shouldn't be. I mean, he, he's looking at it and he's like, well, it is it. No, I don't understand it, but it is. So now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, it's, it's becoming part of it's becoming part of, of the data set, I suppose. And I don't mean to keep using his name in that way. Um, in Hayden Q, he wondered whether the world or planet to which uh, Q had taken them was real. And we had you know, somebody write in and say that maybe it was the act of observation, making it real, making it not real. I personally thought that data was actually open to the possibility that they were someplace that did not physically exist because that's the kind of power that Q had. And And here we are again in sort of a similar situation. This where they are should not be possible. There's no energy. There's no matter. There's no boundary to it shouldn't be possible it is in fact impossible and yet you know so was q and it turns out so is you know Nagilam, in a way he doesn't understand death why doesn't he understand death because there's no such thing for nagilam mm-hmm. it's like wow mm-hmm. so you guys stop being at some point huh totally weird now i don't know how you know Nagilam doesn't know that he won't stop being at some point but maybe he just hasn't got there yet right right so here's this thing that's not a thing. And going back to what we were saying about Audible earlier, it's a bit like hot black desiado ship from the restaurant at the end of the universe. You know, it's just you, you, you know, it's there's no there's no surface, there's no friction. It's just you ask yourself how much more black could it be? Um, and that's a, that's, that's a yeah, whole the, other the,
0: reference yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.
1: Uh, it, and honestly, so you were, I don't know, you seem bothered earlier by Warp's freakout, but I, honestly, I thought Data's like just. OK, well, here's more stuff that now exists is what a great counterbalance to warps totally losing it on the Amato. And there was something else. Uh, forgive me, because I, I know I'm skipping, skipping, skipping. There was another great thing that happened on the Yamato. So uh, Worf goes crazy on the holodeck, but that's okay, because Worf goes into the holodeck every day to go crazy. It's part of his calisthenics, he says. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, the one or two times I've done calisthenics, I was doing it wrong, but whatever. <laughs> Worf goes insane, right? And the only thing that, that that brings him back is Riker saying, at ease, Lieutenant, like yelling at him, basically snapping him out of it. Yeah. But it turns out that that's kind of what's keeping Riker sane as well. Because when they're on the Yamato, Worf starts going absolutely nuts. And then he actually sort of starts saying to himself half as a rem- reminder, half as a almost like a mantra. Mm-hmm. Adios, Lieutenant. Adios, Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he calms himself down. And it's like what's kept Riker in check the whole time is having... Is is being at the top of the org chart is being in command because when they get off the Amato and back to the Enterprise, Riker loses it on Picard.
0: He does, he <laughs> which does. is
1: kind of it. It was it was a bunch of interesting character study in in yeah. this in this episode. I would say there's it feels like there's something from each character. Well, not each character because there are some characters don't get a whole lot. Like why didn't Deanna you know tell him when she? Oh, I didn't think there was anything, but maybe there is. It's Picard who has to say higher level of consciousness. Okay. But, right. I mean, from a lot of the characters, there's some really interesting stuff. I feel like uh, I just way rambled at you, but there you go.
0: Uh, interesting stuff, except Haskell, because he really had no input on any of it at all.
1: <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. We, we did sad. not get
0: his opinion on Nagelum <laughs> at, at all. Though we, though we can speculate what it would
1: well, be. Unless you count...
2: Ooh! <laughs>
0: As <laughs> right.
1: that. Right. Honestly, I was afraid we were gonna have another uh remix head debris moment. Oh yeah, yeah. It almost th- seemed like that. Nobody yeah. owes anybody money for that mention, no, by the way. No, that, no. That one's free. Yeah.
0: There you go, Barry. <laughs> um so uh i want to talk about the data thing, because I, I do think that is very interesting that you brought up and, and it kind of makes me think about the notes that I had taken about data in this. Um this says something about data's programming and i may, uh, clearly it's probably all due to dr sung who will figure out more about how he programmed data later on but um hopefully. there's some hopefully yeah but there's something about data here that that has a tinge of philosophy uh so that he can hold on to these nonsensical Ideas, the, these things that are not just black and white, that are not just data for data's sake. Um, the fact that you brought that up in Haydn Q, speculating whether or not the planet was real, trying to speculate what this nothingness is, um, I, I thought that was all really cool stuff. And it, he, he possesses a kind of like fuzzy logic. And um, and I hate to compare data to a rice maker, but the first time I ever heard of fuzzy logic as being a thing that is implemented in technology uh, was with really fancy rice makers. The idea being that, well, you have a normal rice maker, you can turn it on or off and it gets to a certain point and it says, "Okay, your rice is done. But if you have a fuzzy logic rice maker. It can, uh, it can do things like determine, well, what kind of rice do you have, how much liquid actually is there, what is the correct cooking time for this particular batch of rice as opposed to just being in a state of on or off. So, yes, I just compared data to a rice maker, but a very fancy rice maker because he, he can do things more than just be on or off. Um, I have a
1: Schrodinger's rice maker, by the way. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 It's it's always done and it's never
0: quite finished. And it's never quite finished. (laughs) As long as I don't open it. (laughs) it You'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's always both.
1: I'm actually, and maybe this is, maybe we're just uh, sort of crossing on the terminology here, but I almost don't think of Data's logic as being fuzzy logic. Quite the contrary. Mm. Worf understands that he should not be able to walk through that door and in walking out of this room, walk into the room that he just walked out of. Mm -hmm. going the one direction right unless he turned around which he doesn't do right it is it is his understanding that that's not how things work and so even when things are working that way that doesn't make sense to him Mm -hmm. things don't Mm -hmm. work that way well they are working that way well they don't well they are Mm -hmm. that's i mean black and white they're working that way because they've never worked that way before wharf can't handle it data almost feels more black and white to me because he's going to go ahead. I mean, he's going to accept that because he's not. He's sort of not encumbered by perception. He learns, and he can apply things that have happened in the past. But when things change, uh, oh, things have changed now. So this is something I've never encountered before. This is completely different, and yet this is the way things are. I mm-hmm. I, I think I would argue that his logic is the least fuzzy of anyone's because the way things are are the way things are to data the second they are that way whereas it takes everybody else you know time to you know stop losing their minds about it
0: well but you know it, data would have been curious about the multiple bridges and he would have tried to figure out what was going on and if it meant leaving something in another bridge, you know, kind of like leaving the probe in the in the vastness of the void. Mm-hmm. You know, he's trying to figure out a logical way around the program. But Data can accept the idea that there are things that he can't explain. He can accept the idea that this shouldn't be. And yet it is. Right. So he, he can accept a paradox better than Worf can. Say, right. I, I mean, I love that line. I, I wrote it down in my notes. Is that you know the the thought exercise about science and scientific exploration? Data saying early on that the start of knowledge is the statement "I do not know," and um, specifically without a contraction there. Um, <laughs> uh, but and then we get a reference to that again uh, with that discussion between Riker and Picard with, uh, you know, beyond this place, there be dragons. Uh, the the idea that what I, I forget exactly how Kirk put it, uh, but, it but he said there, there is no unknown. There are only things that are temporarily unknown uh, that they will actually go try to figure out what that thing is. We get another reference to this scientific experiment uh, of the whole show with Geordi's uh, statement about being rats in a trap. It's a funny line saying, you know, keep the cheese. <laughs> I just went out of the trap. And uh, Nagilam is curious, but his experiments are detrimental. He is an unethical scientist, shall we say. And I had to wonder about his methods, you know, because he, he can apparently see and hear everything I'm going to bring this back to the idea of what was going on in Picard's head as well. Um, He's timeless and doesn't understand death, which I thought was a little strange because surely in exploring and experimenting with other species and other things in the universe, he would have come across this idea before that things have matter, things have a lifespan, things change or evolve. Right. Assuming,
1: uh, assuming that he is actually the thing that Worf was talking about in legend of, of a darkness that would envelop whole ships, then, mm-hmm. yeah, these can't be the first
0: corporeal beings. Right, right, right. And he can communicate with us, but he didn't bother to read, I guess, all of our notes, all of our library. I mean, even Khan did that. He read everything in the library as much as he could get his hands on anyway. Um So it was a little strange. we have another godlike, super advanced alien being to contend with. um, And the the final message of which, again, seems to be stay away because you are totally not ready to handle this. Um, But it it made me wonder in in this whole guessing game between Nagilum and Picard. Picard decides he's going to blow up the ship. Mm -hmm. Was there a place in the back of Picard's mind at all that said, I may not have to blow up the ship because even if I'm not bluffing that I really will do it, there may come a point where I don't have to, because if Nigulam lets me go, then I will turn off the auto destruct. And then it just becomes this game of chicken until the enterprise either does or does not blow up until Nigulam decides to let them go or not let them go. Um, so if that thought had been somewhere in the back of Picard's head, I feel like Nigillum could have read that thought as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Interesting. Because I, had the, I got the impression that Nigillum was reading their minds.
1: Well, one assumes that Nigillum was – you'd think that he would have been reading their minds because he does call everybody by name. Mm-hmm. Now, he also calls Data by name. But did he just hear Picard call Data? Is that why he addressed Data specifically? Because Data was odd, and he wasn't getting a reading off of him, or is he just so smart that he can pick up on everyone?
0: I could. I, well, it could have been that he just picked up on everyone. I also assumed that he had been rifling through the Enterprise library at some point. You know, he, here's this thing that comes in, and it takes Nagiela very little time to figure out what this object is and that it has a computer. I mean, we already had another alien being that would communicate with the enterprise computer because it saw the enterprise computer as an entity mm-hmm. that, that, that it could interact with. So for Nigelum, I I would almost think that he would see the enterprise computer as another, um, Another intelligence, it just happens to be that this intelligence is the the vessel in which all these other beings are contained. So even if you wanted to get rid of all the people on board, this might still be uh, a, an object of curiosity um, because he can glean information from it. But then what is the point of gleaning the information if you just destroy it <laughs> or destroy the people on board? So... See, you're wondering
1: whether it was in the back of Picard's mind whether he was actually going to have to destroy the ship or not. I'm actually wondering if Nogilim. I mean, he did. He did kill the one guy. Yeah, ha- Haskell. Yeah, yeah,
0: he yeah. Don't go, don't forget Haskell. He did yeah. kill the one
1: guy. Was he was he really going to kill everybody else though, or was this? I mean, was was Haskell like the necessary sort of prod mm-hmm. to learn what he wanted to learn about humans? I mean, maybe he wasn't actually planning on killing a third of them.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there's I, no
1: indication that he wasn't planning on it. But, I right. mean, you know, if, if he could just kill one and find out what he really wanted to know. Because I thought yeah. it was kind of weird that he was like, oh, I want to find out about all the different ways to die. It'll only take a 30-year crew. Well, listen, I'm no, you know, genocidal maniac, but I don't think killing 333 people is actually going to tell you <laughs> everything. Now, maybe because Nagelan doesn't understand death, he doesn't, you know— Understand, you know, that, that there might be 334 ways to do that. And he might have to come back to Picard and go, and eh, it turns out I'm going to need half to three quarters of your crew. Is that going to be right. a problem? Right. It's possible though, that he, he used the one guy that he sacrificed the one guy to find out how everybody would react to non-existing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to really wanting to just, you know, kill a bunch of people to see exactly how it happens each time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I wondered about both. You know, I, I wondered about what really was in the mind about that what was that the experiment is to see how they deal with the threat of death mm-hmm. and then it made me wonder about what was going on in uh in Picard's mind and it was cool that Picard at the conference table he, he shoots Pulaski that look <laughs> that just says like oh I am dead serious and at that point Riker pretty much has to be on board with it so even if there is that point in the back of Picard's mind that says, maybe we won't have to go through with this. As far as Riker knows, they're going through with it. Yeah. And as far as everybody else on board knows, they're going through with it. Well, so maybe that's enough for Nagelum. As far as everybody in the ready room knows. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. We still don't know about everybody else. Yeah. Still had to get the message out.
1: Sort of along those lines, I, I found it interesting um, when Nagelum tried to turn Picard... When Nigillam mm-hmm. tried to change Picard's mind, and this is actually what kind of gets me wondering whether Nigillam planned to kill anybody else or if he was just, you know, testing how they deal with it. Um, Nigillam sends in Troy, who is the most emotionally in tune among them, and, uh, and Data, the one, you know, tuned most to logic and least to emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting he does that. It reminded me a bit, actually, of, of, of the old um, Ethos, Pathos, Logos, idea yeah, that you yes. proposed way back in uh, the original series. Slow clap, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, though, I mean, you've got more principles on the next generation, so I don't think, I mean, you don't get sort of the Kirk, Spock, McCoy triumvirate mm-hmm. of Ethos, Pathos, Logos. It seems to me that those those roles actually get passed around
0: Yeah, from yeah.
1: Different, uh, two different people at different times. I agree. Or different characters at different times. But it was mm-hmm. kind of neat to see that, that we had this, we had this, you know, we had this yeah, totally emotional and you know she wasn't like crazy hyper emotional. She wasn't she wasn't wharf totally emotional. Mm-hmm. But you have this totally emotional uh, plea for hey let's not die, and this totally logical plea for hey let's not die. And the problem is the the blending of them and Picard is like yeah, but we still got to die.
0: Yeah, right. Well, and, and I kind of felt there for a moment that uh, it, it was a good ploy and it was a good way to do an experiment from Nigelum's point of view Mm -hmm. but then does Nigelum come away going man this guy is crazy (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) because maybe the experiment was can this leader be persuaded to be compassionate or can he be persuaded to something else other than his directive (laughs) so Nigelum's thinking at the end wow Um, Yeah, not going to mess with this guy anymore. He sends a big, omnipotent, anonymous letter to Starfleet. (laughs) Right. you may want to reconsider. Uh, You have a sociopath (laughs) running the ship. (laughs) He is so ready with his finger on that button. That's a fun idea. I want to change gears just a little bit, just slightly from our conversation, because um, it, it ties in some here, but we got... Well, when I say we, me, um, I I got a few comments from Mm -hmm. listeners calling me out privately and publicly for liking Pulaski. We had this conversation on the last episode uh, Mm -hmm. because I said, hey, I I, I like Pulaski. And um, there were a few outraged or shocked (laughs) comments about that. But I want to clarify that because I want to blend that into the conversation about how she acts in this episode too. Here's the thing that I like about the Pulaski character that she's rough around the edges. She's prejudiced in ways that we haven't seen before on this show, on this show where presumably from the beginning, everybody gets along, you Mm -hmm. know, and I'm intrigued by this. We we've had a little to no conflict so far among the crew. And it's kind of nice to see someone who doesn't fit. Um, so that's what I mean by that. I, I don't mean that every trait that she has is admirable. And I don't mean that every trait she has is something that, that we should celebrate on the show. But it gives us something to explore in a character. Um, so then let's talk about her treatment of Data in mm-hmm. this episode. Because on, on the surface, you're like, oh, that's horrible. How dare she treat Data this way? She calls him It. And and then she corrects herself by referencing the service record, which classifies him as alive. So she's rude, to be sure. Yeah. And I, But I also think that she's having a pretty normal reaction that a lot of people would face and maybe will face in the not so distant future with androids. You've got to put this together in your head, the way you interact with these Androids, beings, creatures, robots, however you're going to decide to put these into your, um, into your say, accessibility to, to other people and other technology around you. Pulaski sees data as a toaster with shoes. But he talks, he thinks, and he is more than capable of any task that is handed to him. This will make humans uneasy. There's no question about it. Now, we've been presented with this enlightened crew so far that accepts him readily, and they see every single day Data's abilities. And we accept him as an audience because Star Trek already accepts him. You know, we've already seen an entire season where we get to accept Data as just one of the crew. Mm -hmm. So I'm intrigued by Pulaski's reaction because I want to see her deal with it. And it doesn't make me want to write her off as a character.
2: Hey, you know what the Enterprise needs? Headlights.
1: Comes that time in the show when we do that thing we do, try to figure out the messages, morals, and meanings of the given episode and whether the whole thing stands the test of time. Where Silence has Lease? Mr. Champion, I ask you, does this episode hold up?
0: Uh, there's a lot that I like about it. Um, I, I really love the kind of Twilight Zone feel of this episode, mm-hmm. uh, particularly as they're exploring the mystery of the void in space, the other ship. The multiple bridges, all, all of that stuff it was a great dramatic way to just mess with people's heads. <laughs> so I really dug that quite a lot. And here's a show that almost entirely takes place on the bridge, which is a really hard thing to do and make it dramatic and interesting. But they did it. You know, we, we've talked about that concept before of a bottle show where – um you pretty much just are stuck on that set because you can't afford to go to a location or build another set that week. Um, I hadn't mentioned before in the trivia, but this is as good a place as any to mention it, that by season two, they changed the way that they budgeted the shows. So they would borrow against another show later in the season. So if they knew, okay, when we get to this other thing, that will cost us a lot because we got to build alien costumes and we have to build an alien ship and we got to order order more visual effects and blah, blah, blah. We'll borrow against that. Uh, so we will not do a show that will cost as much now mm. um, rather than just saying, OK, each show is budgeted at, you know, a million and a half bucks or, or whatever it is. They would actually play a little more fast and loose with uh, with how that money got spread out. So this is a good way to do this where you have very few visual effects um, you know, certainly some and some that are very good and then no new sets to deal with. So it, it was very effective in that respect and I think for the most part it does hold up. Now I do have a disappointment with this episode and I felt like the through line with Worf. So we open with him in battle on the holodeck, and we reveal something about his psychology. And then he kind of freaks out on the bridge. He's like, "Oh, we got to go to yellow alert. We got to." And, and Picard calls him on it, and he, he kind of, you know, puts the leash on on Worf there for a moment. Mm-hmm. And then he freaks out again on the simulated Yamato, just tearing at the door. There's one bridge, and we have all these moments that seem to be leading up to something about Worf, about how he sees the world, how he fits into his crew, wherever you want to go with it. But then I feel like it doesn't go anywhere. By the time we get to the end of the episode, we've pretty much forgotten Worf as a character. So we're relieved that no one blows up at the end of the show, that this nice new ship doesn't have to go anywhere. But we introduce these angles on Worf that had no follow through. Now, I know that we're only on season two, episode two, but judging the episode just by itself, it seemed like a lot of effort to build up Worf, but not really have a payoff.
1: Well, not at the end of the 44 to 48 minutes, but I mean, one of the cool things about one of the things that we've already established, even just at, you know, episode two of season two of Star Trek The Next Generation is it remembers that there was a episode one of season 2 and it remembers that there was a season 1 as well. Mm-hmm. So I mean you're right, you're not getting the payoff at the end of the 44 minutes, but think about how many times we learned something about a character, we saw some real growth uh for a character in the original series and then we reset the clock to zero and we start again next week. Right. You know what right. I mean? I mean we learned a lot about Worf and maybe it's a difference and I think we talked about this a lot in the original series. Maybe it's a difference in the way television was being made in the '80s and, and '90s. Maybe it's a difference in, in in how much attention you can expect from the audience. Maybe it's just a difference in what the audience expected. I mean, what we learned about Worf today—it's weird. He was actually a much more fleshed-out character in this episode than he was any time in season one. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic cut. <laughs> there's a fantastic cut somewhere on YouTube, and I'm sorry I don't have it. It might actually be on our Facebook page though. Of all of the times that Picard and Riker just shut Worf down.
0: (laughs) Right. And a lot of them were actually, I think, from the
1: first season where Worf would say something and and Picard would just be like, no. (laughs) Put
0: put (laughs) away the phaser, mister. Right.
1: And that's kind of all we got, with the exception of a couple of episodes, like like Tasha's last episode. Mm -hmm. Was that her name?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Tasha
1: Yar. Something like that. Right. Yeah, I yeah, can't I remember. remember. Yeah. Uh, in Tasha's last episode, we actually had a little bit more character than we had gotten from Worf to that point. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it was actually, I think, just written to make it more poignant when Tasha, you know, dies. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it was neat to see that little bit of growth. We're seeing more growth from Worf here, which is why I'm okay with there not being a payoff right at the end of the episode because my assumption is that we're going to get... You know, that I mean, that this is part of fleshing out this
0: cast and crew. It is, but it also, to me, it felt like a little bit of a left turn because it, in Skin of Evil, we've got Worf having some real camaraderie with his fellow crewmate, with Tasha. Mm-hmm. Too bad she's gone, you know, yeah. within a few minutes. Um, but then in this, it's just like, all right, who assigned the dangerous person? to be the head of security. Not, not that the head of security shouldn't be tough and shouldn't be willing to fight and willing to defend, um, but I, you and I have talked about this before, with uh, like a, at nightclubs, you know, you actually shouldn't be aware of the security that's there, right? right. <laughs> you know, it, it's like you, it, that only happens every now and then where the security kind of comes out of the darkness and gets rid of the problem and then, you know, Goes away. Uh, it's like the Secret Service, you mm. know. Secret Service. They're, they're kind of there, and they're, they're kind of this quiet presence, who you know you don't mess with. But it, it, in this, it, we seem to be building up this thing about Worf being a little unhinged, <laughs> and that I wondered by the end of this episode, is somebody going to sit down with Worf and say, uh, "Hey." Take it easy, dude. All right. Uh, I'm not saying that this is what's happening today, but I have often
1: wondered mm-hmm. on Next Gen if every character isn't part of a whole. Like, if the Enterprise mm-hmm. isn't us. And I don't mean if the crew of the Enterprise isn't us. I mean, is the Enterprise us? And so we've got all these different things. We've got the feeling part, that, that and that's that's represented by Troy. We've got the fight or flight. Well, actually, we've got fight. <laughs> and that's represented <laughs> by Worf. I know it's it's and you know we got the logical part and that's data and then you know, hopefully the whole thing comes together in Picard and then I'm leaving out you know a bunch of characters there but I I wonder if you're not giving him a little bit of short shrift instead of looking at this as why is Worf such an idiot if we maybe don't look at him as 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 part of a bigger organism you know that's supposed to represent yeah. you know every one of us
0: oh, fl- I, flying through space I, I think that's a totally valid. Way to look at it. I I just feel like within this episode, because we've had other elements of Worf, Worf, and other growth from Worf before. I feel like in this episode, all we're focusing on is that he will become unhinged. (laughs) You know, he he will become a bit unbalanced. He he already stood up to the other Klingons, who showed up um and and sort of differentiated himself he said look i I, I may have this in my blood, but i 'm also loyal, and i I kind of am happy with the life I have carved out for myself, mm-hmm. even if i 'm not hundred percent like these other people that I serve with. I know how to band together for a common goal and a common cause here and now now we just have this other side of wharf where it's like oh okay uh he might also kill Riker. <laughs> you know? well who
1: hasn't thought about it
0: right really? well who hasn't
1: no i mean I, and i wonder honestly and and this might be worth researching um i wonder if this isn't part of um already not
0: as involved in mm-hmm. season two right uh, he still is. But, yeah, but we, we've had more of a changeover in writing staff. And, yeah.
1: Because yeah. in season one, I mean, there was the edict that there is to be no conflict yeah. among members of the crew, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I can't imagine that this would have flown in season one, at least. Because in mm. season two, now we do have this character who might go nutty. Right. And not right. because, you know, he's been taken over by an alien anti anything or, you know, not because has been reprogrammed. But just because, yeah, you know... He might go nutty. Right. And so it seems like, I mean, this might just be, um, I don't want to say the show getting away from uh, Gene Roddenberry because I don't know the history of it. But, I mean, this it, there seems to be a bit more of an evolution of ideas that, that would have been verboten in yeah. season one. I got to say, I like this episode a lot. I will also admit the first time I watched it, I got distracted and started doing other things. It's very <laughs> slow. It is. And yeah. yet, the second time I watched it, when I was like, you know. You've got to like pay attention. I was surprised how quickly it went I mean so mm-hmm. I-, I liked it overall, although i it, it, it's a, it's sort of a weird recommendation to say, yeah the first time I checked out, but the second time it was awesome because yeah. the first time I did check out but the i mean it's I shouldn't say it's slow exactly, but not a lot happens, and yet there's a lot there's a lot going on mm-hmm. and 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 I know that doesn't sound like it makes any sense, but that's sort of how I felt about it. Can I do can I do the message? Yeah, can sure. Can do it, what my message what what the message sure, I Sure.
0: Sure, I will not hold you back, I was Ken.
1: absolutely amazed to find out in your trivia that um that that uh, some of the writers or one of the writers from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan was in this because the message that I pulled out of this uh and I got it in quotes and everything, how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, yeah. that, and that's that's what, and and this this whole episode actually is kind of a Kobayashi Maru. That is, uh, of course, the line that uh, Kirk presented to Savick when Savick was asking about, you know, what's what's the point of the Kobayashi Maru? There's no way to win. Everybody's going to die, and Kirk's like, "Hey, look, how you deal with death? I mean, it's as important as everything else you do, isn't it?" And of course, Savick hadn't thought of that, and that's that to me was was exactly what we were going through uh, going through here.
0: Yeah. Uh, by the way, totally easy for Kirk to say. Yeah, Always is. <laughs> because
1: he's never had to deal with it, right? He's nope. always just sort of patted himself on the back. He's cheated it. He's, mm-hmm. yeah. You yeah. can go back and listen to that episode if you want to. It's kind of awesome right what about you though were there other messages that you picked up do you agree with that one what do you what
0: what well i do agree with you i mean i I think that is the big fat message sitting on top of this episode and and i think that's very cool because we we get to explore the idea of death at least through picard's eyes there um it it was an interesting conversation like you said with the avatars of data and uh indiana um so I thought all, all of that was really great. I thought that they were going to delve a little more into this idea of the scientific experiment gone wrong. But that's not really what this episode is about. It just sort of serves as an interesting uh, backdrop for, for how we frame what Nagilam is doing to this crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did jot down Nagilam's sort of final monologue. Uh, that he shares with Picard when when his face appears on Picard's laptop in uh, in the ready room. <laughs> yep. He says uh, he says you seem to find no tranquility in anything. You struggle against the inevitable. You thrive on conflict. You're selfish, yet you value loyalty. You're rash, quick to judge, yet slow to change. It's amazing you survived. We have no common ground. You're too aggressive, and I thought how many times has an alien powerful entity said that to Kirk or at least thought it to Kirk? And then I thought, well, here's Star Trek again, showing us this snapshot of humanity and, and maybe exposing those flaws and saying, well, yeah, maybe we are kind of like this, but as Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation has done compared to Star Trek The Original Series, it's trying to show, look, in time, we'll get better. In time, we may not overcome any of that stuff 100%, but we will try to be better than we were the day before. And if you are like Captain Kirk, you may still be a barbarian, but you choose not to kill today. <laughs> so I had hoped that Nagila would have at least picked that up from his brief interaction with these humans and with the library computer of the Enterprise to show that humans may have these things as flaws and they may be horrible contradictions, uh, that they're not finding tranquility, that they are struggling against the inevitable and thriving on conflict and all of this stuff. But, but, progress still has been made and hopefully maybe this is a more enlightened um, slightly better adjusted crew and better adjusted version of humanity so yeah i thought of kirk as did you
1: yeah yeah kind of interesting i am of course uh, as we often are I'm, I'm curious uh what everybody else thought of as well would you like to tell people how to get in touch with us or shall i sir
0: uh, I would love to, Ken, because there are many good ways for you to find us. Uh, in social media, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, you can reach us at MissionLogPod. Uh, all three places, Mission Log Pod is our handle. You can call us at 323-522-5641. You can email us, MissionLog at Roddenberry.com. And uh, our show website, including our discovered documents, is at MissionLogPodcast.com. And we have two great distributors, partners who carry our show, trekmovie.com and trek.fm, which is trek.fm where you'll find us and a ton of great other podcasts. So please do check them out. And uh, remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of mission log. So try to keep the comments relatively short. Sometimes we get fabulous, fabulous comments, but, uh, They're very long, and and we can't always uh, narrow them down. (laughs) So short short to the point comments, we really appreciate it uh, because all of your comments are awesome. Thank you. Next week, Elementary Dear Data.
2: Some of the music formation Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. If the darkness governed by Nagylam is without matter, energy, or boundary, if it does not in fact exist, then can these things have happened? Was there even a show today? I will be back to Blow Your Mind again next week. And transmission. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac
1: Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich.